Hello, and welcome to Outside World Occultism, the most delayed Toho podcast on the internet. Oh, life happens. I am JT, and with me today are Katja and F. Hello. Originally this week, we were going to be talking about the new manga, Cheating Detective Satori. However, our local expert and the translator of that work is indisposed. So we're going to lead into it by doing a promo episode on the underground, the people around there, subterranean animism. Is there anything that anyone wants to do before we get into that? Since Lavender isn't here, I just want to plug his translation on Cheating Detective Satori. You can just find that on chirekiden.tumblr.com is where I think he's posting updates. We'll have a link under the podcast. Or you can just find it directly on Manga Ducks. It's our very own Lavander who's doing the translation on that. So yeah, check it out. We're so powerful now. <laughs> I don't know if we can take credit for it. We are collectively powerful now. Even if it's just one of us who is like 99% of that power, that still means <laughs> that distributed amongst us, there is a great deal of power. Doing 99% of the heavy lifting. So yeah, subterranean animism. Sort of always a special place in my Toho heart for being the first game to release when I was following the series. I got in on my friends playing Scarlet Weather Rhapsody and sort of spiraled from there, so... Oh, me too. Uh, Actually, no, that's not true, but I did play a lot of Hiso Tansuku when I got into Toho. I've actually never beaten Subterranean Animism. I've come close. I've come really close. I've beaten Orin. If you've passed the cat, you're doing better than I've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) It's not an easy game by any measure. I think it's like the hardest of that stretch. Yeah, definitely. People will say you get a bit more starved for resources in UFO because it assumes you're like hanging on the gimmick, but the fights in UFO don't come close to Orin. I guess other than shows buggy hitboxes, but... I still need to play UFO. Since we don't have a structure for this episode, we could just go through it character by character and do like our impressions sort of thing. Yeah, I figure that's what we're going to do. And just kind of talk about basically a setup primer for cheating detective Satori. I haven't decided if I'm going to call it Cheating Detective Satori or Chideki Den yet, and I just keep alternating between them, and it's going to be very confusing, but that's okay. I usually just call them the English portion of the title, right? Because that's what we do with, like, we call it Wild and Hard Hermit and not Ibaraka-sen. Yeah, but it doesn't have an English portion of the title, is the thing. I guess, but... I guess that's the translation, so it's fine. Well, I'll call it that. Mm-hmm. Chideki Den is so much fun to say, though. Compromise. Call it Chireki Den Detective Satori. <laughs> Chireki Den Detective. Uh, this is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not going anywhere. This bit is going nowhere. Let's. Uh... Yeah. Let's talk about a girl who lives in a bucket. I think. Actually, first, I want to say I really like that the little border on the side of the game that just says subterranean animism over and over in the background. I love that it has the letters for Remu and Marisa like highlighted in it. Yeah, Zun's interface design is sort of not talked about much, but he does a pretty clever job with it for the sort of 
necessarily simple things that he's building. Yeah, I think his like interface design is always like, really beautiful and like it's just nice to look at. I think a lot of menus and interfaces don't consider that as much as they should. Like they try to sort of do a more utilitarian. Yeah, um, and obviously you know graphic design is a big thing and people do care a lot about the designs of their menus, but it feels like often in games the interface is not nearly as aesthetic as it could be. Yeah, it's something that's not usually considered a priority in game development culture as much as sort of secondary to it. Never mind that the few times when someone does do something really great with it, like Persona 5, it gets like, everyone's like, oh, this is really cool. But it's not really viewed as a return on investment sort of thing in the way that fancier graphics are. Yeah, and sometimes it's just a complete disaster, like Grand Blue Fantasy. <laughs> yeah, call back to the last episode. I will still work for you for crystals, Mr. Psy Games. It won't actually be the last episode when this is published, because it's the last episode that was published as we're recording this. <laughs> yeah, the last episode that was published the day before we recorded this on the 17th of November of 2019. Anyway, yeah, is really great menu design and I always appreciate it and I just love that their names are highlighted for no reason. I think he saw the chance and he took it. Yeah. Honestly, who wouldn't? <laughs> Before we start on the characters, what is the story of subterranean animism? Do you want to start with, like, as the characters signed out about it, or start from the beginning? We might as well go through it as the characters do, because we're going through the stages in order, right? So the beginning, I guess, is that there's mysterious hot springs that have sprung up behind the shrine, and or at random. You know, everybody is, Framu is enjoying them until one of her three partners uh, shows up and tells her to get a move on investigating this mysterious event. Wait, no, sorry. There were also wicked spirits popping out of the hot springs and ruining everybody's bath experience. Yeah, and we can't have that. And so Remu gets an iPhone from Yukari and goes underground to find out what's going on. And then somewhere along the way, Marisa is also consulted by Alice, Patchouli, and Notori. There's only two playable characters, but they each come with a partner, which you don't actually see because they just like communicate with Raymond and Marisa. One of a number of remote methods. Y yeah. yeah. Magic cell phones. The item gathering mechanic in this is like themed on like cell phone connection, basically. And the higher up you are on the screen the better your connection is, and when it's maxed out, you gather all the items on screen. It's functionally not really any different from, you know, the typical item get borderline, but... See, until you described it, I had no idea there was a mechanical difference there. It's just, like, themed differently, I guess, but it's, like, exactly the same mechanic. It's just how good your connection is. I guess phone service underground can get pretty good, actually. Yeah, I'd believe that. So the partners show up, and so Remu is teamed with either Aya, Yukari, or Suika, and Marisa is teamed with either Alice, Patchouli, or Nitori. Dojins tend to have each protagonist assisted by all three partners when they're portraying something from SA, just for the funny group dynamics that those selections come with. Imagine Remu trying to deal with Yukari, Aya, and Suika all at once. That's a little bit more than a handful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Marisa, at least, like, those are three people who would get along well amongst each other for the most part. They would just, like, snark at each other. 
together. Just, yeah. just based on Alice and Maurice's route in Imperishable Night. Well, and in Subterranean Animism, and that's one of the other great things that Subterranean Animism does, is the dialogue between the players and their supporting character. And Alice and Maurice's is the standout to me, only like half for shipping reasons. <laughs> Because their canon dynamic is always so great, and it's just the constant bantering and ignoring the bosses, a clear continuation of their Imperishable Night dynamic. Yeah, it's great. I've never actually played this game as Marisa, but I've seen a bunch of the hand-picked dialogue that other people have decided to show. The partner system in this game is also the fuel for a lot of these specific pairings. Well, it was also a lot of previously popular pairings, too. That's true. Marisa and Nitori is about the only new thing to come out of it on that end. This actually makes me wonder, did Marisa use missiles as her focus fire before subterranean animism? No, she had a little magic dart thing. I see. That's interesting, because I always assumed that the missiles were like a callback to the ICBM that Marisa just owns in PC-98. That's We're going to have to do a Phantasmagoria of Dim Dream episode <laughs> at some point to just unscramble all of that game. And it's weirdness. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I assume probably that the missiles here are a callback to that, but... But they're also her Nitori shot type. Yeah, and ever since that game, Maurice's focus fire has, generally speaking, been the missiles, I think. It definitely is in the last three games, at least, I think. It's definitely been one of her shot types. They just sort of replaced the old darts with the missile Danmaku as they moved into this engine. I don't know why you're saying they, because it's just one guy. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I'm just... The mysterious they behind Shanghai Alice. <laughs> yeah, I'm just used to referring to game developers as institutions rather than single people, even when they're single people. <laughs> Look, all I'm saying is if Zun came out using the royal we, I would respect that. The only valid king. So Subterraneanism, they start out and they go to this big dark cave. And the reason the partner characters can't come down with them is like some ambiguous treaty between the above ground and the below ground where all the real nasty yokai are. I feel like probably a lot of them just didn't feel like going. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't think of any of the sages are the sort of people to just keep their word for the sake of it rather than to phrase their word in such a way as to do something they would do anyway. Yeah. Why would Suika not be allowed into hell? Unpaid bar tab. Yeah, Suika's, I don't remember the Remo Suika path very well, because I ever, her shot type is not good. <laughs> <laughs> I think Suika, like, escaped hell or something? Or maybe I'm misremembering. In her profile for subterranean animism, it says that she, like, you know, she thought about coming along just to see what was going on, but Yukari's cell phone thing looked interesting, and it let her... Just, like, hang out and see what's going on while sitting at home and drinking. So that's the reason why Suika didn't come along. So Suika's gonna Suik. <laughs> <laughs> so our girls descend into the underground, which used to be hell, but is now just a hole in the ground, I guess. And their first encounter is a weird girl in a bucket 
Yes, Kisume, the token dialogueless mini boss of this game. She was the, I think the, no, no, because Momiji came before her. I don't think there was one at any point in UFO though. Uh, no, no. Okay, so yeah, because there's Momiji and Tojiko also in this set, keeping that role alive. Kisume is a because it's she's a Surube or a Toshi or something. Like a well dropper is the type of yokai. She hides in a bucket in a well and asks for bones and throws bones at people <laughs> and takes people's bones. <laughs> That's literally it. That's her whole story. Like she's just, she lives in a well. She throws bones at people. No dialogue, no like speaking lines or anything like that. She literally has more lore in Symposium of Post-Mysticism than she does in this game. She's a nameless mini-boss, except she has a name, basically. But Zun did that a lot in, like, the quote-unquote second-generation Windows games. Yeah, because he didn't want another Koakuma and Daiyose situation. Yeah, I think he actually at some point said that. He actually did say that uh, in some interview, I think in one of the Strange Creators ones. We really gotta start, like, pulling all this material out ahead of time so we can <laughs> refer to it. In fairness, this topic decision was made, like, half an hour ago. Or half an hour before recording, rather, so... Yeah, and this is a bit of an emergency episode because people are out and sick and not feeling well, and we're actually recording a day late because I was... Ex- I didn't have a voice yesterday. The podcast abides. Yeah. So yeah, she lives in a well, she throws bones at people. Um, the type of yokai she is is actually, you said it earlier, uh, Tsurube Otoshi, which apparently the whole well thing is not a thing specific to those things. Because they're like a floating skull kind of thing. Yeah, if you Google it, you get like a bunch of weird heads and they just kind of hang out in trees and drop down on people when they walk underneath. The underground is a place where all of the yokai that are like too like horrible and hated and disliked by literally everyone live they're just kind of the exiles and the outcasts gay baby jail <laughs> yeah and having googled what a tsurube otoshi is and seeing it i can understand why kisume lives down there now <laughs> <laughs> i love that the google results for this are like these horrible bearded like bald heads just making gruesome faces and then there's just occasionally a picture of Kisume being adorable. The duality of yokai. <laughs> yeah. I really like her art in Symposium of Postmysticism, actually. The only official image of her ever, I think, probably. <laughs> There's, a, like, an image of her. I think she's in Wild and Horned Hermit crowd scenes at one point. Really? She's in Chapter 2 of Forbidden Scrollery and uh, Fairy's Chapter in the background. <laughs> I'm trying to locate her, and I can't. She's so minor, her cameos are just complete invisibility, it seems. I was wondering if it was, like, maybe her doing something like being in the crowd shot at, like, a festival or something, which would be kind of weird. Like, what are you doing there? We've definitely seen undergrounders in festival scenes and stuff, though. So, like, post-subterranean animism, there's some loss of the embargo. Sure, but do you really think that Kisume of all people, is the type to go to a festival. I feel like she's, like, she just lives in a freaking bucket and throws bones at people. She doesn't seem like the sociable type. I mean, yeah, but Diogenes was in some crowd scenes, too, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, 
said is she Kisume is the Diogenes of Toho, I guess. Uh, with all that that implies. Oh my god. <laughs> so speaking of all of the filth and decay that that implies, do we want to move to Yamame, who we actually know things about? We know like two things about her. Yeah, she's a spider. She builds stuff. Like she's a construction worker. We know a third thing about her. Yes. What's that? She applied to join the Muran Temple and said she wanted to join to eat people. And so Vyakran turned her down. Ah. That's interesting. <laughs> I don't know if we're supposed to take that as her being a prankster or her having difficulties with basic social cues or even just some people are using to razz back run over. I like the idea that it's just her being like very bad at socializing and like she doesn't really get life above the surface because like yeah she's sort of our normal denizen of the underground yeah well one of them the early portions of this game are just kind of just random people who live underground and they attack you for various reasons because they're all horrible horrible people (laughs) in various ways and nobody likes them for good reason yeah I think that's all there is to say about her, really. Like, she's just a spider girl. She can do what a spider can. (laughs) Or I guess she can do what a spider curl. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, GT. (laughs) Okay. Just give me a moment. I'm going to just duck out of sight of the windows so nobody murders me for that joke. (laughs) Okay, next character. We've got Parsi. Definitely one of the big breakouts like the subterranean animism cast is broadly pretty popular and that sort of starts at parsi yeah i feel like overall yeah the cast of essay is really popular but then like there's like nothing about kisume and uh yamame because there's nothing about them in the games and nobody's really attached to them and their personalities don't come through as strongly as parsi and yugi's do exactly so parsi is some kind of bridge troll (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah she's a a hashihime uh or bridge princess which is like uh, a ghost of a spurned woman who you know drags people off the bridge and and bridge troll things yeah she's extremely jealous all the time of everything and she can like control jealousy in other people also which is kind of ironic because like she just kind of uses it to just like ruin relationships and stuff even if she doesn't like have a good reason to be jealous of someone she'll like come up with a reason to be jealous of them it was interesting to see her reviews in the the strange creators oh yeah i remember everyone giving satori like a negative number and i think that was just raymo and everyone else gave her a zero kisume and yamame are treated as a single character we do actually get a (laughs) zunart kisume here Raymond and Marisa are just like absolutely having none of Kisume and Yamame. They don't even talk about Kisume. They're just talking about her like, being a nasty spider. And Satori is just like, it's thanks to them that no one wants to enter the cave. Thanks for everything. <laughs> 10 out of 10. <laughs> um, an- another thing that we know about Yamame, and I think this finally caps out the list of things we know about Yamame. She controls diseases and just kind of spreads them all over the place, which is another reason why people don't like her. (laughs) She does, however, have the colon three smile in her Zunart. Yeah, she's very cute, but very horrible. She's very appropriate for outside world occultism. (laughs) (laughs) What if I change the icon on Tumblr to just be a close-up of her face? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you do that now and you do the... I'll think about it. 
Anyway, uh, spider stork aside. And so Satori sort of talks about Parsi where she's jealous of everybody, but that's because she does actually like appreciate them and what they're doing. And she's sort of nicer than people act, which I think is like, honestly, I'm going to try really hard not to derail this into just the Yuparu episode, but (laughs) I mean, I will do nothing to stop you. It's not my ship. So I guess it's on to me to derail that conversation. (laughs) Yeah, but and so she gets this um, like she just puts up voodoo dolls behind Remu's house and like Marisa's just thinks she's so gloomy. I like that Marisa gives her a one. Remu gives her a zero, but Marisa gives her a one. Yeah. And so she's sort of the gatekeeper, quote unquote, of the underground in that she handles the bridge that goes into the city. And the significance of that when everyone can fly, I don't know. Look, I mean, you have to fly across the bridge. It only makes sense. Yeah, I guess it would be rude (laughs) otherwise. There's invisible walls on both sides. (laughs) It's just until someone with the speedrun strats figures out bridge skip. (laughs) If we want to be a little more serious, maybe the river is is like a tributary of the sands or whatever, and if you try to cross without using the bridge, it suddenly becomes infinitely long, or wide, it's already infinitely long, whatever. It's magic. That would make sense, because, I mean, this used to be hell. Yeah, that that would make its degree of sense, yeah. Not only did it used to be hell, it also used to be Buddhist hell, specifically, and not the pre-Buddhism, like, Yomi, because they mention, like, very specific tortures or whatever, not in subterranean animism, but in, like, Koishi's dialogue in the fighting games. Yeah, it's definitely a very Buddhist hell, and it- do we know why they moved? Budget concerns, I think, or something like that. Yeah, it's like a very bureaucratic reason. That's a very ministry reason. Yeah, they just yeah. Uh, folded together and consolidated, laid off redundant employees, synergy, Six Sigma. They, uh... I do really like when Raymond Marisa and Satori are giving ratings to the yokai of subterranean animism. Satori, she gives everyone high scores because she's just like, oh, I love all these horrible people, whereas the outsiders are just Yikes. not into it. Yeah. Except Yugi. They're nice to Yugi. Yeah. And by nice, I mean like a passing grade. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so I guess Parsi is very angry all the time and hates you because she's jealous of you and attacks you because of that. I think the the other interesting thing about her is that there's just like a ton of like her outfit and the stuff that she's based on is like version like Zoroastrians. Yeah. Uh, which is also the like etymology of her name. Yeah, Parsi comes from Parsi. I don't think it's ever been like talked about in canon in any capacity but it's certainly a like i know we've joked about it on this podcast before for some reason or another but it's like it's this idea that's there and like you can't really deny that it's there but at the same time it's never really directly addressed at all yeah it's just a thing for like the deep lore nerds to be like whoa she's got all these connections to persians or austrians i do think that it's interesting i don't actually know enough about Persians or Austrians to really break down what the implications of this are, but it's interesting. Yeah, I mostly know the connection through her. My knowledge of Persian Zoroastrianism pretty much stops at Parsi and Freddie Mercury. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do we want to move on to Yugi? Yeah, Yeah, because I feel like most of the stuff that I would have left to say about Parsi is also Yugi relevant. Um, Yeah. Yugi is... Shaped like a friend. Yes. <laughs> Very drunk when you fight her, too. She's got the blushy cheeks from that. Yeah. 
Yeah. I love her design in this game. It's really silly. Like, she's just got, like, a t-shirt on. Yeah, she's just, like, chilling in a gym shirt and chains and getting hammered. Yeah, and also her dress is, like, slightly transparent. No, that's just the way it's drawn in Symposium of Post-Mysticism, I think. Yeah. And she's the one that everyone sort of gets along with out of the subterranean animism cast because she's very personable, friendly, direct. She's an Oni. She's the most Oni-like Oni of all the Oni in Toho. Yeah, she's the most generic Oni considering that Suika and Kasen are both specific Oni with their own traits a lot more. And while Yugi is connected to them mythologically, she's not this figure. She's one of the Oni who was with these figures. Yeah. She's based on... Hoshikuma Doji. So one of Shuten Doji's Suika's subordinates who is just sort of mentioned as being one of Suika's subordinates to my knowledge. Yeah, and in Toho she's not really like any kind of subordinate of Suika. She's actually like one of the big four of the mountain with Suika. So the big four, the Shuteno, were subordinates of Shuten Doji mythologically, but Shuten Doji is counted as one of them in Toho. And likewise, Ibaraki Doji may or may not have been a number a member of them. Mm. Sometimes Ibaraki is like one step higher on the rung. But Suika and Kasen were both former members. And then there's Yugi and then there's one more. And when Yugi was introduced, we weren't really expecting to see any of the other Oni. So it was kind of surprising to have someone come in connected to a pre-established character. Yeah. And I think she's the first new character to do that. Yeah, I think so. Because it's been more common these days, but Yugi was the sort of original case of that. I think you're right. Before that, if Zun was bringing back an old character, he just brought back the old character with Alice and Yuka and returning player characters. I guess Momiji is actually the first case of this, but she doesn't count. Right, she doesn't have a... Yeah, Momiji doesn't really count because she doesn't have lines and she wasn't like an implicit character other than there are other Tengu. And also it was consecutive games. So there's a lot of rabbit holes we can go down to justify why she doesn't count. So Yugi is the most Oni-like Oni in the sense that she's the most straight, like straightforward and direct and honest one. She's just a big rowdy jock. She like follows you through the whole stage, basically, which I think is like the first time that that happens and maybe also the only time in Toho that that happens. I can't think of anyone else. I think it's the only time where they're on screen. Because most of the time, if it's the mid-boss shows up and then goes away, or... Technically, Sagame would count too, but she's not on screen when she's fighting with drones or whatever. Yeah, I really like Yugi, and I'm glad that she is getting another appearance in an official Toho game with 17.5, where she's got a fancy robe on and just spends all her time in the hot springs, which I guess she's like the boss of the hot springs or something. Which it makes sense. That's sort of a Yugi-like job to have. Fanon has usually put her as some kind of like soft power in the underground which would fit with running the hot springs i don't think there's much of an actual power structure in the underground it's just sort of like people who can command some degree of respect yeah exactly everyone just kind of does their own thing they just live in anarchy down there which i think is appropriate for the kind of environment that it is it is interesting though to compare that to tengu and kappa versions of what it was like when the oni were in charge they'll always talk about they were giving all the orders and doing all that that doesn't really fit with the personalities of really any of the individual oni we've seen who were also the ones in charge 
I think that there wasn't like a sort of official power structure, but the Oni were in charge, technically speaking, because they're so powerful that nobody could really stand against them. And they'd be like, oh, I think this is a good idea. Let's do that. And people had no choice but to go along with that, really. The Tengu version of the story, they're very hierarchical, so they would think of it like that as a more formal thing than it might have been. Yeah, and they're also prideful, so they wouldn't enjoy having to be the minions of Oni, I think. Mm -hmm. So Yugi gets shipped with Parsi for no reason, except that they're adjacent bosses. They're in consecutive stages, yeah. They're the iconic consecutive stage pairing, and like the only one... Because you get a lot of those, and then they usually like peter out. Yeah, like Hina and Mitori. I think the only one that's lasted apart from this one has been Seiran and Ringo. And even then, we had like... They have a lot more connections than just being consecutive stage, though. Yeah, they have actual connections and we have actual material with them interacting with each other it's kind of amazing to me just like how strong yugi and parsi is as a ship like how the fans of that ship like how dedicated they are to it it's had quite a long shelf life and that's kind of impressive to me for a ship that's founded on basically nothing i know i'm, I'm probably pissing off some you paru fan who's just like actually they have like all this deep interaction and connection and they can like support each other or whatever I'm like, yeah, you're valid. That's fine. I just don't feel the same way. That's its depictions. Yeah. And the reasons it's kept so long as a ship is that it is a very good, like, personality balance. Especially with, like, Satori's comments and the things, right? Mm -hmm. Where she talks about, well, Parsi's a lot nicer than people think. And deep down, Yugi's kind of jealous of Suika. And, like, they definitely have a good dynamic that the fans have built. And I certainly do like it. Mm -hmm. But it's also, like, this isn't something that has a strong canon foundation as much as like you can take the canon stuff and relatively reasonably make a good dynamic from it but they haven't like spoken in canon yeah yeah and also yugi is notable because she reimu marisa and satori all give her just sort of the same middling rating reimu gives her a six marisa gives her a seven satori gives her a seven they all have like different takes on those ratings like marisa's is actually like praising her quite a lot she's like oh she's so amazing she's so super strong and she's got all this like cool stuff like her sake dish Reimu is just like very grudging about it she's like she's the only person in the underworld who makes any sense She's an Oni. She's, you know, straightforward and direct. Raymond likes dealing with people who are like that. She doesn't like being attacked by spider girls for no reason. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting that Raymond and Marisa don't really have anything bad to say about her. And Satori has like... Satori's comments are a lot of either this person's great or this is what they're like deep down. And it's telling that that's sort of how she goes at it. And I guess then do we just want to like go into Satori now? Yeah. So Satori, I think... Uh, is one of the characters we learned some of the most about through these reviews because... She's great. I love her. She's amazing. Yeah, fandom has sort of historically made her this kind of, you know, sad and lonesome person because, you know, she only hangs out with animals because she doesn't like being around people. And the fandom sort of took that as she wished she was around people. And then her review for herself, she gives herself an 11 and talks about how awesome she is. (laughs) Yeah. 
Valremu takes that extra one she gave herself and takes it away and gives her a minus one with just a no, don't go anywhere near her. Yeah, Remu is extremely not a fan of Satori. She very strongly dislikes her, doesn't like having her mind read. Oh yeah, so Satori is a Satori, um, a Japanese yokai that reads minds. She's got like a floating eyeball that's like attached to her by like blood vessels. Yeah, the Toho Satori have a really sort of interesting design. A very gruesome image if you think about it, but not actually, like, you know, rendered in Toho's cutesy style. It's, it just yeah. looks interesting. It just looks like a weird accessory. Yeah. It connects to, like, her head and arms and stuff. The one in her arm looks like an IV port, almost. It looks like it's attached to her headband, too. Yeah. It's kind of confusing, like, what part of this is biological and what part of this is fashion, and, like, yokai choose their appearance anyway, so maybe her clothes are part of her who knows. These ribbons are made of flesh! Yeah, like a Kimono Friends thing, where they can just, like, take off their tails and stuff. Who knows? Let's not worry about it. She can read minds. Nobody likes her because of that. And she doesn't like people because of that either. Yeah, so she just lives in a giant palace underground. Surrounded by animals. Yeah, she loves animals. She has a bunch of pets. And then she has a little sister who we'll get to later. And she's the main character of Chirikiden, at least implicitly. She's been in like one panel so far, and it's been more Orin doing the talking. But yeah, she is at the very least using her mind reading powers to be a well cheating detective. <laughs> the interesting thing is that she doesn't really use her powers in the first chapter. She doesn't leave her house. Yeah, she's just in her basement talking to Orin through a, some kind of magical cell phone <laughs> and figuring out who killed Patchouli. Yeah, I love that she loves herself. We stand a self-love queen. She loves her pets, too. Like, her ratings are like, oh, this person's useful, this person's like this, this person's like this, and then she gets to her pets, and it's just like... They're so cute and adorable. I love them so much. She talks like she's in the Pokemon fan club. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah yeah so satori is really great i think it's interesting that she's the boss basically as far as stuff down here goes but she's the fourth stage boss she's not actually like you know the final boss or anything like she's only tangentially related to the incident but she is responsible for the people responsible for the incident yeah she left her door open and her cat and bird got out and caused a bunch of trouble yeah, so let's get to her cat and bird. Before we talk about, is from like a gameplay perspective, how Satori works is she just reads your mind and uses your partner character's spell cards, which can be a rude awakening for people playing through the game as Remu Yukari. <laughs> Yeah. And to a lesser extent, Marisa Patchouli, because she picks out Patchouli's most bastard spell cards, but... I remember playing this game as the border team and <laughs> being very stressed out by <laughs> Satori's spell cards. Yeah, she's one of the more eye-opening bosses, and I say that because the next is Orin, Slayer of Me. <laughs> So she's a cat. She has both cat ears and human ears. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's Satori's pet cat. And she is also... Akasha. Yeah, yeah, which is a yeah monster cat that steals dead bodies. The, the name Kasha has always been funny to me because Kasha in Russian means like oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what oatmeal is made of. Corpses. <laughs> Soylent green is people! <laughs> <laughs> like, 
like, I can't take it seriously when people call her Akasha because, to me, that's just oatmeal. But yeah, she's maybe one of the most goth characters in Toho. I love her design. It's very... Her dress is really good. Shout out to that person on Twitter with the now-deleted tweet of, like, why did no one tell me that the dancing meme cat girl drags corpses to hell? Yeah, she has a little wagon that she puts dead bodies in and brings them to hell and puts them in the fire. And she does her job. She's great at her job. She's like one of the many different kind of like psychopomp characters in Toho, I guess. Even though she's not really a psychopomp, but she just deals with the bodies. Yeah, she cleans up after the psychopomp. Yeah, and she's not weird about it. She just kind of... She's just like, bring out your dead! Yeah, she doesn't, like, kill people for corpses or, like, she doesn't go digging up graves or anything like that. Like, she literally just... She's a cat. She just sees something and is like, Eddie, are you going to eat this? (laughs) And not even wait for an answer. (laughs) I don't think she, like, eats dead bodies. No, she doesn't. She throws them in the fires to stoke the flames. Yeah. More out of tradition than out of a need to actually keep the flames going anymore. Yeah, because there's no reason for Old Hell to be still going. I do want to say her stage five theme is like one of the best. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Her stage theme is one of the best stage themes in Toho. Lullaby of Former Hell or whatever it is. Forgotten Hell. It's like a really good, like quiet sort of relaxing theme. Especially after dealing with Satori throwing Yukari spell cards at you. It's just a very pleasant and relaxing experience. Um, And then you get to her and she ruins your life. Yeah, she's the worst. (laughs) She can turn into a cat. Oh, that's not the part that's the worst, though. The worst is the zombie fairies everywhere. Yeah, she has a bunch of zombie fairies and she turns into a cat and just like kind of gets the zoomies all over the screen. Not only are her spell cards like hard and annoying to deal with and has a bunch of like zombie fairies who just block all your bullets, but she's also zooming around all over the place so you can't really like pin her down and constantly shoot at her. So you kind of have to actually deal with her spell cards for a really long time and she has killed nearly all of my subterranean animism runs. Yeah, she's killed all of mine. She is, well, all of the ones that get past Satori die to her. Yeah, and the most annoying thing about subterranean animism is that when you bomb, you lose power. Yeah. And different characters have different ways their bombs work. Like Marisa and Alice have twice as many bombs for their power, but they also are like smaller and weaker individually and don't do the whole screen. And like, you can't really bomb through her spell cards because after you use two bombs, you have to time out the rest of her fight. So yeah, she's very cat-like. She's just a horrible, horrible cat who ruins your life, but you love her. She's also the other major character we've seen so far in Cheating Detective. She's officially the detective's assistant, and she seems to be doing most of the work and sort of calling Satori on her big comfy couch and being like, you know, here's all the clues. And Satori's like, well, it's obviously this person. Yeah, we'll talk about that next episode. Just trying to tie this to its intended purpose. (laughs) And that leaves us with... uh... One more thing about Oren. Shout out to the same pic of Oren dancing every day blog on Tumblr who posts the exact same gift of dancing orange every single day it's hard work and someone has to do it yeah someone has to do it and you're out there it's actually a rule you're a true hero holding up the skies like atlas yeah yeah let's talk about utsuho yes 
also known as Oku. So she is a crow yokai who gets fed a sun god by Kaneko in one of her patented schemes. Yeah, so it turns out that the geyser and stuff, all of that was Kaneko's doing. Kaneko is the one responsible for this incident. This is sort of where the whole meme about everything being the Moria Shrine's fault came from. Yeah, which, I mean, it kind of is. This directly leads into the next two games, too. Thanks, Kaneko. Yeah. We wouldn't have Miko without you. Yeah. <laughs> this sort of starts off an arc of Kaneko just being the bastard responsible for everything. This is the one thing she does directly, and then everything just sort of snowballs to that and absolutely backfires against what she wanted. Yeah, that's true. So Utsuho, she's a bird. She's Satori's other pet. Or one of them. We see her with a bunch of other unnamed, possibly non-yokai animals. Yeah, I think yeah. those are non-yokai animals, or at least ones that can't talk. She's maybe the most over-designed character of all time, and I love it. I really love her design. She looks like she's from a different franchise, almost, in just her... Like, she feels like a character from a very strange anime fighting game. Yeah, yeah, she really does. And actually, I encountered her in Hiso Tensuku before I encountered her in Subterranean Animism. She's so much fun to play in that game that she became my favorite Toho character for quite a long time. I kind of went from Cherno to Utsuho to Rainbow and Marisa as I expanded consumption of different Toho works. She's so satisfying to play in Hisa Tensuku just because like she hits like a truck and she's she big. Yeah, everything she does is very like weighty and feels very powerful. I like that she's making a mystic gesture in her character portrait. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but the thing where she's pointing upwards with one finger is something that like uh, medieval European and like early modern occultists would put in paintings or drawings to indicate like something about like pointing the way to enlightenment or whatever. And then oh. here's this total bird brain who's doing that, but she's also uh, an incarnation of the sun. Yeah, and she's generally pointing at like a little mini nuclear sun art where she's doing that. I think that was definitely an intentional move on Zun's part because he's always so careful when he designs a character and draws their sprite and art and stuff I feel like he's always very deliberate about the way that he does it oh for sure especially in like more recent games like Wily Beast but I do think that the mystic gesture as you called it pointing at the nuclear sun is a very intentional choice by Zun She's a hell raven. She controls nuclear fusion. She's not the brightest, but she's very, very, very bright. She has a brain full of sunlight and nothing else. She was just an ordinary hell crow before this. And then Kaneko like fed her the god of nuclear fusion. She Well, she fed her a Yadagarasu, which is like a type of sun god, essentially. The sun crow, they're messengers of Amaterasu. Yeah, the three-legged crow. Yeah. And in Utsuho's design, that's expressed by turning one of her arms into a laser cannon. (laughs) Which is also called a control rod. Yeah. Never mind that fusion reactors don't use control rods. (laughs) Don't worry about it. I mean, yeah, a lot of her design is sort of themed around nuclear reactors, and those are not fusion reactors, so... But that fits with Gensokyo's whole perceptions versus reality thing, too, because most people have no idea what the difference is. Yeah, and she's got a gigantic eye on her chest, uh, very eldritch, and also one of her legs is just like encased in concrete to resemble the elephant's foot at Chernobyl. And also she has 
like huge wings and she is wearing a cape where the inside of the cape is like stars in space and it, they like move. She looks like what you would expect from like a 13 year old's D&D character in all the best ways. Yeah, she rules so hard. I love her design. I think it's definitely one of the best character designs in all of Toho. It's like completely over the top and that's what you need to know about her as a character is that she is wildly over the top. Yeah, she was just kind of a normal bird and then she got powered up into this godlike creature who has power over nuclear fusion and like shoots suns at people. She's the final boss of this game. And Satori gives her a 10. She gives Oana a 10 and she gives Utsuo a 10. Because they're so cute. She calls her <laughs> stupid, um, which... I mean, she's kind of dumb. She has one brain cell that's devoted to running a nuclear reactor. She's brilliant at nuclear physics, I guess, but she's she's just a dumb bird. Orin has, like, every other brain cell <laughs> that could theoretically... She is any and all of Oku's functioning entity brain cells Yeah. at any given time. So why is... Utsuho the final boss anyway. So the actual plot is that after getting fed the Yatagarasu, Oku just she's meant to like restore the glory of hell and all that and plans to like invade the surface and set it all on fire. Yes. The hot springs and the evil spirits were actually Rin using her power to drive things to the surface to try and get someone to come down and deal with it without having to tell mom, basically. Yeah. So essentially the protagonist fights Oku to convince her that maybe she shouldn't burn down the planet in a fit of i am a god now so kanako's plan was to bring nuclear power to gensokyo because kanako's whole thing again is providing modernity to the humans of the village but in a way that they understand it as originating from gods so you don't encounter the sort of side effect the development of science and technology in the outside world had on yokai existing and just like people not really believing in them anymore because you're no longer that afraid of walking down a dark forest path at night when there's streetlights everywhere. But if you can provide something like that while also keeping people afraid of you and or like believing in you, then there's no such issue. And Kanako kind of wants yeah. to be that sort of god of technology to the humans. And she decided that the way to do that was with nuclear power. Good for her, honestly. <laughs> After we find all of this out from Oku, who is no longer, you know, Trogdor the Burninator, <laughs> Remu and Marisa head up to the Maria Shrine to shout at Kaneko, who is out. They fight Sane as the mid-boss cementing her status as like a recurring character yeah. and then there's nobody else in the game right <laughs> i can't think of anyone like it's so weird i feel like there's like somebody just like in the back of my mind but like yeah i'm not getting anything when i think about it right it's so weird for an extra stage to just have a mid boss but like kanika wasn't there so yeah i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> Let's actually talk about the extra stage boss, though, because I love her. She's Yeah. The bit we were just sort of doing, of course. So the last stage boss is Sektori's younger sister, who people, you know, don't like having their minds read. And so Koichi's reaction to this, rather than Sektori, who was like, fuck off, I'm living in the underground now. If you come to me, that's your problem. 
Koichi decided to close her third eye and cut off that mind-reading ability, which just made her like a mental blank. Like, her ability is, you know, quote-unquote, controlling the unconscious mind. But what it means is, like, people can't retain knowledge of her, like, meaningfully. Her name literally means, like, pebble, like, just a little rock, and... That's kind of what she is. She's just a small rock by the side of the road, and person walking down the road, their eyes just kind of slide past it, because it's not anything to them. It's just a rock. Not even something that they think about. That's basically the effect that Koichi has on other people. They can acknowledge she's there, but they can't, like, keep information about her in their heads. Yeah, and she can just kind of walk around freely without being noticed or seen by other people, unless she kind of wants them to. She's kind of an invisible friend, I think is how Symposium of Postmysticism described her. She is probably the biggest breakout of the cast in a reasonably popular cast because she comes back in Hopeless Masquerade and the later games uh, in that fighting game period, mm-hmm. which give her a lot of characterization and a lot of great dynamics with the other characters. Yeah, the other side effect of her closing off her third eye is that she's also just kind of empty-headed now. She's very, like, whimsical. She doesn't, like, think about things. She's not, like, a stupid airhead or anything like that. Like She just acts on her first impulse all the time. Yeah, she doesn't really think about things. She just kind of does things as they come. Or it's not that she's bad at thinking, it's that she doesn't think. Exactly. I guess part of this is just the fact that she closed her third eye because she was kind of depressed about nobody liking her. And because she did this, she kind of lost her purpose as a yokai, which I think is basically the worst thing that can happen to a yokai. And so she's just kind of got this weird half-life now. And she doesn't, like, actually mind that much, is the interesting thing. She's sort of very free-spirited. She's, like, she has a very sort of sad backstory, but she can't really, like, feel sadness in that sense. She's just sort of like... On to the next thing. Yeah, she doesn't worry about it at all. Not consciously, but unconsciously. She's just not worried about it. Yeah, she's... If Satori is all about, you know, thought and that, Koishi is just running on instinct the whole time. Yeah. Later, we finish off the group with Kokoro as the emotional sort of side of that triangle. Yeah. We should talk about Hopeless Masquerade at some point soon, honestly, just because I feel like it would... Kokoro's like an interesting addition to that, yeah. Koichi finds herself an arch enemy. It's great. Yeah. So a really fun thing about Koichi is that Byakuren is like interested in her because she thinks that Koichi's state where she's just kind of like living in the present. Her lack of worldly presence. Yeah, her state of mind is like totally empty, basically. And Byakuren thinks that that's the closest thing that there is to enlightenment in the Buddhist sense. And so she (laughs) converted to Buddhism just because Byakuren asked her to. I don't know that she has any feelings about that or even remembers that she did it, but she's a Buddhist. I think she has like memory because she does still remember things. That's true. Because it's not that she doesn't like have knowledge or a sense of self or anything. It's just that she doesn't use complex reasoning. What I was trying to say is that, um, you know, she's not really committed to Buddhism just because of her like whimsical nature. Like it's just a thing that she did on a lark and maybe doesn't like I don't think she really keeps up with Buddhism. I don't think she knows what Buddhism is other than <laughs> that she's Buddhist. 
Yeah. Like, she isn't someone who can do, like, philosophical implications of something. Yeah, she's not, I don't think she's, like, committed to the Buddhist teachings or anything like that. At the same time, though, with Byakuren's theory, I don't think she has to be, right? Exactly. Buddhism speedrun. <laughs> yeah. Byakuren can just kind of, like, hold her up as an example of... Yokai enlightenment. Yeah. The interesting thing is that Satori gives her a 7. She gives her own pets a 10, but she gives her little sister a 7. But she's very worried about her, basically, is the thing. Like, she just wants to know that she's... If Koishi doesn't want to be seen, then not even Satori can, like, really do anything about that. She just kind of wanders around wherever, and so Satori's always worried about her. She doesn't know where she's going. She also is, like, it's a shame that she doesn't use her cool, amazing, awesome Satori powers. It seems like maybe she's not sympathetic to her sister's feelings about being a Satori and being hated for being, like, a mind reader. I don't think Satori quite gets what Koishi's objection is. Yeah, they can't really, I don't think, talk it out anymore so much. Yeah. But... An interesting thing is that in her omake.txt for subterranean animism, the reason she's the extra stage boss is that she heard that somebody, a human, beat Utsuho, and she wanted to go see the person who did it. And so she wandered around until she found a shrine and met a human there, which is implied to be, you know, Rainbow or Marisa. And... It says, you know, she thought it was amazing to meet such an interesting person and wanted to know more about her. And for the first time, she regretted closing her third eye. She's sort of the moco of this time period in the sense that she's had an ongoing character arc about this big decision she made and might regret. If we do a Hopeless Masquerade episode, we can talk a lot more about how Koishi's character fits into that because she's very central to the story of that. Because she sort of does change over the course of that game. Yeah. She's a really interesting character, I think. Like, she's got, like, such a great design, too. I love her hat. I love her dress. I love her big floppy sleeves. She has a big toothy smile that I always think from a distance looks like she has a mustache. (laughs) And she has a knife. Sometimes you gotta. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she has a knife in the fighting games. Because she's being a, uh... Creepypasta. Certain creepypasta, basically, yeah. I think the other notable thing about her is that she once managed to beat out Reimu and Marisa at the top of the character polls. Yes, right after Urban Legend of Limbo, because everyone loved her creepypasta so much. I don't think there's another character in Toho who is as much of a breakout character as she is. She's definitely such a standout in that. She's like, I think still number three in the polls with a pretty hefty lead. Actually, in the last one, Yomu was number three, I believe, and she was number four. Oh, okay. Yeah. Considering the other characters at the top of the list are all like Scarlet Devil Mansion people or like Imperishable Night people or Perfect Cherry Blossom people, it's a very impressive accomplishment for a relatively newer character. Although at this point, she's quite an old character, really. The top 20 is pretty diverse at this point, actually. It's still heavily EOSD, but there's a lot of... It's not like all of them, right? It's like Flandre and Romelia and Sakuya, specifically. Yeah. And I think Petruli just got bumped down to out of the top 20. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the popularity poll once the <laughs> results on that are out, because yeah. I have an annual tradition of doing far much more analysis of that than any human being ever asked for. Yeah, I'm excited for the next one, because Wily Beast and Weakest Creature, I think, has the potential to shake up the polls. And certainly it's shaken up, like, my top 10. So that's the cast of Subterranean Animism. Mm-hmm. 
I really want to see more of Koishi specifically in Cheating to Toka Satori because we don't really see her. But we'll talk about that in the next episode. Yep. Is there anything else you want to cover today? Do we have any mailbag? Um, any other last thoughts? I don't think so. No. Yeah, the irregular release is probably not helping that. <laughs> yeah. But we'll, I mean, like... We'll catch up eventually. Stuff was going on, and it's more or less settled down, and so now... Right, exactly one week from tomorrow, I will be done with all exams. Nice. And then we'll be able to more reliably have a rigid release schedule and so on. So that's the show, right? Yep. Yep, that's the show. This has been Outside World Occultism. We will see you next week for our discussion of Toho Chirekiden, Cheating Detective Satori. Until then, peace. Yeah, bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening.